0: We are going to be studying Ephesians chapter 1 today. And while you're turning there, I'd like to greet the mothers who are here today. And I want to thank you for your service. We say that about military people, and rightfully so, and I don't want to take away from that. But the truth of the matter is, right now, we live in a population that is declining. We live in a population in which the number of children are declining. We live in a population who... 20 or 30 years from now, it is going to be hard to find people who will actually work and do work. Uh, The the population is declining so greatly. We are actually in such a population decline that uh, the culture as we know it today will not survive because we're not reproducing enough human beings unless you go to Crossroads Church. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing our job here. And, uh, and uh, But honestly, I actually see mothers, and I, I, want, I sometimes will say to them, thank you for your service, I will, because uh, of what you're providing and what you're doing. And I know that motherhood is hard, I know that it is. I know that many of you right now are, are knee-deep in dirty diapers and spit up and crying babies and sleepless nights. I know that's true, I know that is, and, and that time will pass. But I want to encourage you mothers about something. Number one is you're doing the most important job in the world. Um, First of all, bringing a new human being into this world, birthing that child, nurturing that child, training that child, raising that child, loving that child, instilling values and virtues into that child is the most important thing that you could possibly do. I don't care if you're a mother and a brain surgeon. I don't care if you're a mother and you're a big shot corporate lawyer. I will guarantee you this, by the end of your life, there's only gonna be one thing that's important to you. And I'll tell you why I know that. I know that because I'm 67 years old, okay? So most of my friends, most of my peers are now retiring. Most of them have established and achieved important things in life. I have friends who are millionaires. I have friends who just simply lived very modest and humble lives, didn't make a lot of money, but were very skilled in their trade and in their skills. I have friends who were women who had corporate jobs and were important people in their little spheres of life. But what do we talk about now? What do me and my peers talk about now that our lives are over? Now I'm still working, but then the rest of them aren't. What do we talk about when we sit around our dinner table? Do we talk about the pile of money they now have? No. Do we talk about all the toys that they bought? No. Do we talk about the vacation homes? Many of them have them. No. Do we talk about their jobs and what they did and how important they are? No. They talk about their kids and their grandkids. They want to see their kids and their grandkids. And that's why I want to encourage you moms don't listen to this crazy culture that says, oh, you're sacrificing your career. Oh, you're sacrificing money. Oh, you're sacrificing that boat. Oh, you're sacrificing that European vacation. Yeah, you may be, but in the end of your life, I guarantee you, as you get older, you are not going to be talking about all of those things. You're going to be talking about your kids and your grandkids and when you can see them grandkids again. And, uh, and I, I think that that's the way God has knit us together. There is nothing more important in life. Your legacy is going to be those children and what they have done and what they have accomplished. That will be your legacy, and that will be your greatest joy. And so I just want to encourage your moms, the next time you have that poopy diaper in this hand and that crying baby here, and that I want you to be encouraged that this is a very beautiful and glorious task that you're involved in that you're doing. And I just want to encourage you, uh, do it well. Do it well. Especially you moms with young kids. Um, do it well. Do it well. And, uh, and they will be a great blessing to you as well. So thank you, moms. Thank you for your service. We appreciate it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would please be with us now. Father, I feel this morning a unique way, absolutely, absolutely, unbelievably unqualified and unprepared to handle such a glorious verse as we're going to look at today. Father, we just need the help of your Holy Spirit. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to begin to really grasp, and I hope that today we grasp, Father, with great power that we would grasp what you teach in your word this morning. But Father, I know that all of eternity will not be long enough for us to fully grasp what we're going to look at. Nevertheless, Father, help us open our eyes, be our teacher, speak to us, we pray. Give us grace, fill us with a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see your greatness and know the power that you have toward us to believe in Christ. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Have your Bibles open to Ephesians 1. That's where we're going to focus. It's going to take us a little bit of circling the field before we land there, though, and such. Let me begin by saying this. Ephesus, that's why Paul read Acts 19 for us. Ephesus was a very impressive and strange place, okay? Very impressive. Ephesus had a stadium, for instance, that held 24,000 people, and that stadium is referred to here in this text. That's the stadium that they filled, and if you Google Ephesus today, you can see a satellite shot of that stadium. Its ruins are still there, but it's big still, and that Ephesus had this amazing stadium. Ephesus also had one of the eight wonders of the world, Uh, ancient the ancient world had what they considered the eight wonders of the world the pyramids of Egypt being one of them and one of the eight wonders of the world was the temple of now if you have a new King James and a King James she's called Diana but her Greek name her actual name was Artemis and so the other translations will have Artemis I'm going to call her Artemis uh, the, there was the temple of Artemis was there, and it was absolutely amazing. Again, you can Google this, and you will see uh, what uh, from the arch- you can see the remains, but then they build up what they looked like, the remains, and what this thing actually looked like, and people from uh, around the then-known civilized world came to worship and serve Artemis, and Artemis was a goddess. Artemis was the twin of Apollos and Artemis was, uh, was the, the patron goddess of lots of things. In fact, Artemis is still active today. I just found this out this week. There is a coalition that started under the Trump administration. They, 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 NASA did a coalition with Europe, Japan, Canada, and us, and we are once again heading back to the moon. And this is, they actually have a manned space flight that is going to send to the moon and circle around it soon and coming back. And that entire program is called Artemis, okay? It's called Artemis. So so her name and her, her, her reach is still here today, Artemis, because she was the, the, the goddess of the moon, too. And so that's, you're going to hear a lot about Artemis, actually, in the news now. But So, Ephesus, so Ephesus worshipped Artemis, and all of the weirdness that comes with these pagan worships, all the strangeness that came from it. Ephesus was a place of weird occultism, and uh, at one point, as the gospel goes forth, they burn all of these magic books, and it was an astronomical amount of money. Thousands and thousands of dollars worth of money in magic books were were burned as these people turned to Christ in Ephesus. Ephesus was a place of demonic activity where the demons were actively involved. and And, and as the gospel goes forth, the demons flee. and uh, And here there was spiritual warfare going on. And these seven uh, Jew- Jewish exorcists tried to exorcise these demons out of this one guy. And this one guy. And what a weird scene this was. That one guy says, "I." I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? And he he attacks them, all seven of them, to the point that they're actually running out of that place naked. He stripped all their clothes off of them and beat them up, and they're bleeding, and they're flying out of there from these violent a demonic activity that was going on in Ephesus. And so Ephesus is a strange place. There's all kinds of darkness there. There's all kinds of impressive religion there. And then there's this group of people, this small group of people that, uh, that are meeting in the school of Tyrannus, this rented hall, and they're the church of Ephesus. And so you have this small, insignificant group of people and they're in the in the shadow of one of the greatest pagan temples that are there. And and all of a sudden, Paul writes what we're gonna see today, and he's gonna write about how absolutely significant they are, and how insignificant all of that is, and that's what we're going to see, and I hope that you understand, you can grasp this, so look at our passage, it's Ephesians 1, remember this is the prayer, Paul is praying, he's praying that, that the eyes of our hearts will be open, and we would see and understand our hope, our calling, and then the power that is directed toward us, and then he says this, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power, "...toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come." This power, he says, that raised Jesus up from the dead, raised him to the highest level of supreme authority and and power to the right hand of the Father himself and above all of these other things. Now, that was the gospel message. That was the gospel message. That's how they preached. Keep your ribbon in Ephesians. We're going to look at a couple passages. But look with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is poured out in the book of Acts. Peter begins to preach. And notice what you see in Acts chapter 2. Listen to how Peter preaches the first Christian evangelistic message. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 32, Peter says this. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses... Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and now he quotes Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in the Old Testament uh, from the Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament, "The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool." Let therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you put to death, whom you hung up on a cross, who was taken off that cross, dead and lifeless, put into a tomb, this Jesus God has raised up and he has placed him to the right hand of his throne as he promised in Psalm 110. And he's making all of his enemies under his feet and he is Lord and Christ. He is Lord of all. Jesus Christ, Right now at the right hand of the Father is Lord and Christ of uh, Lord of all. He is Lord of all. Now think about this for a second. Jesus, the man, Jesus, the helpless babe lying in the manger. Jesus, the precocious 12 year old who was debating and talking with the scribes in Jerusalem so that his family left him. Jesus, who took his lunchbox. And took his tool belt and went to work from probably the ages of 12, 13, or 14 through the age of 30 as a carpenter, as a builder, as a tradesman. Jesus who hammered. Jesus who laid block. Jesus who sweat. Jesus who got dust all over him. Jesus who then at the age of 30 begins to travel around and itinerate and preach and, and, and as a rabbi. And then perform miracles. Then prove that he was God. Then prove that he was Messiah. Jesus, that man who was arrested, bound, beaten, humiliated, crown of thorns upon his head, laughed at, spit upon. And then finally nails smashed through his hands, nails smashed through his feet, hanging there, dying. Taken down lifeless and dead and put in a tomb. This Jesus is now the head, the boss, the chief, the sovereign, the majesty, the, the, the king, the president, the prime minister, the potentate, the top authority, the most important, powerful, authoritative lord of all lords, king of all kings. This man, God, this God, man has been placed at the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel. We hear it so powerfully in in Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 11. I listened to this this morning again in in Handel's Messiah, just in preparing and getting ready for for church. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven. The seventh trumpet is being blasted, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And ever. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Now, to the Ephesians, think about this message. To the Ephesians, Now, you see, about 150 years before this was written in Ephesus, Rome came rolling in, and Rome took over. And Rome began to say, we're in charge now. We administrate everything here. You will pay taxes to us. You will serve us. We are in charge. And Paul is saying, and so the the Ephesian church is reading this letter from Paul, and they're hearing the Roman soldiers up and down the street, and Paul is saying, Jesus Christ is Lord over those Roman soldiers. He's Lord over Rome. He's Lord over Caesar." Jesus Christ is above Artemis. Jesus Christ is above all of these evil spirits. Jesus Christ is above all of these demons. Jesus Christ is Lord and King. What an encouragement that would be to that. You are following the Lord. And dear friends, the same is true today. Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. Jesus is Lord of the United States of America. The President isn't. The Congress isn't. The Supreme Court is not. The U.S. military is not. They have been given authorities. They have been given duties. They have been given responsibilities. But listen, each one of them, from President Biden down to the senators and the representatives, down to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, down to the Supreme Court, each one of them is going to have to give an account one day before Jesus as to how they handled this this stewardship of his country. Of his country. Jesus is Lord of the United States of America. He is Lord of China. He is Lord of Russia. He is Lord of Europe. All of Africa is his. He owns it. He rules it. He is Lord of it. And so every time I hear the phrase, make Jesus Lord of, I want to just stop that person and say, stop talking like that. We don't make Jesus Lord of anything, He is Lord. We recognize Him as Lord. We may need to straighten up and bow down to him as Lord. We may need to recognize our authority and and, and all that we have is is ultimately accountable to him. We may need to stop rebelling against him and treat him as Lord, but we don't make him Lord. God made him Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He rules over everything. He guides everything. The universe is his, all is his, as the God-man, as the Redeemer. You see, Jesus had all power and authority before he came to earth. In fact, in John 7, Jesus says, Lord, let them see my glory, which I had with you before the world was created. All things were created through Christ. He was already Lord of everything. But he gave that up. He put that aside, as it were. He did not consider equality with God something to grasp. He came down and he took on human flesh. He, wanted, he needed to take on a hand. He took on a hand. Why? So a nail could be smashed through it. Why? So we could be saved. And he died. And after he did that great sacrifice for our sin, that great act of love to save us, God blessed him and raised his name to make his name above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, Jesus, the man, Jesus, who is also God, fully God, the word made flesh that every knee will bow. He has exalted the man, Jesus. He has exalted the God-man, Jesus. He has exalted him to the highest place, and he has given him back the, the reins of the universe, giving him back all of the stars, all of the galaxies, all of the oceans, all of the mountains, all of the land. Jesus owns your yard Jesus owns the land. He owns the fields. He owns the sun. He owns the moon. He owns the stars. He owns every fish in the sea. He owns every bird. He owns it, and he guides it, and he directs it, and he rules it. He is Lord. But notice this. He uses all of that majestic lordship to an aim. To an aim. It's not like the father gave Jesus all this stuff, and Jesus said, well, you know, fresh off being a carpenter now, so... What do I do with this universe? Jesus didn't. That didn't happen. It didn't happen. Put that far from your mind. That didn't happen. But Jesus has this universe. He has these stars. He has this planet. He has all of us. He has every nation. What's he doing with it? What's the goal? What's the task? Look at the text. The Bible answers that important question for us. Look at verse 19. I'm sorry. I'm back in Ephesians, by the way. Ephesians chapter 1. No, I'm sorry. Look at verse 22 first. It says this. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head over, A-L-L, all things, now notice the next phrase, to the church. Some of your Bibles may say, for the church. Now, he's already intimated this in verse 19. Look at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then look at verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head of all things to the church. Jesus Christ is Lord and has all of this authority. He's head over all of these nations and the entire universe and all of the solar system and all of the galaxies. For a purpose, for a direction, for a meaning. What? For the church. To take care of the church to prosper the church, for the mission of the church, for the good of the church. He rules over the galaxies, for the maturing of the church, for the growth of the church, for the holiness of the church, that he might present the church blameless and holy and righteous before God. Christ's mission, Christ's purpose, Christ's goal, Christ's primary, primary number one thing, first in his mind, Christ's most important work is the church. The church. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, just before he's leaving the earth and he's going to go ascend to the Father, it says this. And Jesus came and spoke to them, to his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's the proclamation of lordship. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Get out there. Tell the whole world. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them. I'm Lord of everything. Here's your marching orders. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus is Primary purpose, goal is to build the church. The most, the, the mission of all of creation is the church, is the church, his people. That's super important. Look in the book of Ephesians. We're going to see this time and time and time again. One of the reasons I wanted to preach through Ephesians was this focus on the church, the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writes this to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages... Isn't this this so typical the book of Ephesians? Once again, we get this wide-sweeping thing. Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Look at the role of the church. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Look at chapter 5. We think it's about husbands and wives, which it is, but it's about husbands, but he keeps talking about Christ and the church. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The whole coming to the earth and sacrificing himself and giving himself was with a focus for the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Here's the mission. Here's the purpose of of all reality not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Drop down to verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak about Christ and the church. You see, dear friends, think about the people in Ephesus right now. Think about these people in Ephesus, and they're hearing this. They're hearing Ephesians chapter 1 read that all things have been put under the feet of Christ. Christ is the Lord of all for the church. And they're sitting there in a house church or in the the hall of Tyrannus where they had to set up, you know, chairs and and, 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 and everything. And then tear it back down because they're just rented facilities here. And they're in the shadow of one of the great eight wonders of the world. And there's satanic activity going on all around that place. Demonic occult stuff, magicians everywhere, evil spirits speaking. And then there's the great Roman Empire who thinks they're God. And Paul is writing and telling this little insignificant church in Ephesus, the Lord of the universe is running the entire universe for your sake. The rest of this stuff is for you. All of it is being run for you. Christ rules it for them. That's what the Ephesians should be taking away from this. What should we in the United States of America be taking away from this? Let's bring it up to our day. This understanding of the centrality of the church in the place and the plan and the work of God... This should have a huge impact upon us. Number one is a correction, and number two is an encouragement. What's the correction? This should be a correction for us. The importance of the church, the centrality of the church should be a correction for us because we now, as modern people living in America today, we are being programmed to think one thing only, personal autonomy, personal fulfillment, personal happiness. Now, what's that mean? That means I'm the center of the universe, not the church. And certainly not the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is there to make me happy, make me fulfilled, make me, give me blessings, do good for me. The church is here to bless me, build me up, help me feel good about myself. And so what do I do? I come walking into the church, get my blessing, and walk out. Walk in the church, give me a blessing. God, God. Don't like the music, go find another one. Don't like the music there, don't like the music there. like the music here, I'll stay here. Good music, good music, oh, don't like the music anymore here. I'm going to go over here. Don't like the preacher here, don't like the preacher here. He doesn't make me laugh, he's not funny, he's not entertaining. Oh, this one, he's funny, he's entertaining, and I like the music. I'm going to stay, it makes me feel good, I feel good. Okay, time to go, good bye. Do you meet anybody there? No, do you know anybody there? No, you committed to anybody there? You help anybody there? No, 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 this is about me, this is about me. This passage is a total correction of that. This church, any church, is not here primarily to meet your needs, and you walk out. The church is the reason the whole universe is still spinning. God is gathering a people, and he's gathering a people, and they're his people. And the church is the people of God. And this should be something that is, that is important for you. It's important for you to understand. It's an important correction. That the church is to be the center, not me. That I'm to understand that I'm privileged to be a part of this. That this is the body of Christ. And we're going to talk about this a whole lot more. This this should be another correction for American Christians too. Now get ready because I'm going to make some of you mad. I like to warn people because it makes it easier. (laughs) Christ's number one goal is not to make America great. Christ's number one goal is not to make America great again. And the church is making a huge mistake when it feels like we need to make America great again. We need to just win this cultural war. Dear friends, I want to see America great again. I do. I look at America now, and I look at this place, and I look at how afraid I was when I found out that Isaac rode his bike from my house to Dan's house. I was afraid when I found that out. My mind went to terrible places what could have happened to that little boy when he'd take that little bike ride. And I I was saddened and angry That my America has become that. That a little boy can't ride a bike a mile down the road without parents and and grandparents being worried about him. I look at the perversity, the sickness, the the, the decay, the breakdown, the laziness, the self-centeredness, the the wickedness, the the animosity that this nation has become. And I think this is nothing like the nation I grew up in. And I want us to get back there. And I believe that getting back there is to get back to our biblical roots. I believe that's why. Getting back to an understanding of who God is and what the family is and what it means to take your responsibility in life and what it means to be a person of integrity. And all, We need to get back And We don't have a clue about this. We don't have a clue about this. We talk about gun control, gun control, gun control, gun control, gun control. You know what? When I was a kid, we were washing guns. I went to Commodore Perry. We brought our guns to school. We had gun racks in the back of our trucks with our guns hanging there so we could go hunting afterward. And we didn't ever think about taking in And shooting anybody. But now, now a culture that has left God, a culture that has left moral values, a culture that is all about me and my anger, a parent, parents that don't raise their children and say, that attitude is unacceptable and we are not going to be angry like that. Children who have never heard that, never been taught that, they grow up and they think there's nothing to take a gun and start shooting people away. No, I want our country to be back there again. I pray for it. I minister to that being there, but that's not my primary goal. It's not to make America great. It's not to make America what it used to be. It's the church, the body of Christ. And I want not only the church to be powerful and and exuberant and and, and emphasizing its, its influence in America. I want it to be happening in Russia. I want it to be happening in China. I want it to be happening in Europe. I want it to be happening in Africa because the church is central. And, dear friends, I want you to understand this as well. And this should be an encouragement to you. You say, well, wait a minute, if if Jesus is Lord over everything, then why is he allowing America to become such a cesspool and so aggressively anti-Christian and and calling Christians' names and persecuting Christians? And why is Jesus allowing us to do this? I'll tell you why. Well, I won't tell you all the reasons because he's Jesus and he doesn't consult me on this at all. But I will tell you what I do know. He's doing this to wake up the church. He's doing this to make a stronger church. He's doing this to get us to come alive and start praying and start. Re- See, the church in America has grown s- sloven. It's grown f- flabby. It's grown weak. It's got distracted. It's, it's forgotten the gospel, it's forgotten Christ, it's forgotten truth, it's forgotten doctrine. And so, what is Jesus doing? He loves his church, he's going to raise up hostility toward it. So that the church begins to, to grow again. The church begins to get strong again. The, tr- the church is never stronger than when it's persecuted. And we all need to decide what we're going to do. Are we going we- we to melt away and, and be silent and, 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 and just hope they don't pay any attention to us? Are we going to stand up and say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going with you. I'm for Christ. I'm for him. Do what you may. I'm for him because he's my number one allegiance. Jesus wants to get us to that point. I recently read, and I told you this earlier, but some of you may not have heard, I recently read an interview of a Chinese pastor and he said, you know what, China in the last 20 years has become so prosperous, so much money, we've, we've made so much that the Chinese church decided that what we really want to be is middle class Americans. And now And now the Communist Party is persecuting the church severely. And and I'm glad for it, he says, because it's getting us back to where we're once again seeking Christ. We're once again praying. We're once again saying, I'm going to be faithful to him to the end. You see, Jesus is doing this all. He's running everything. Whoever becomes president, whoever becomes head of Russia, war in Ukraine, uh, uh, all of this stuff, Chinese government party, all of this he's doing. He's doing it all. For the church, for the church, for the strengthening and well-being and growth and maturity of the church. And that's, and the gates of hell will never prevail. But we haven't even, I'm sorry, we're going to be a little bit late today. But we haven't even touched the, we even touched the main thing. Here's the main thing. In light of his rivalless majesty and authority and greatness, the last phrase that Paul uses in this chapter is astonishing. It is breathtaking. It is spectacular. It is staggering. It is startling. It is stunning. It is wondrous. Listen to this last verse. Verse 22, To the church, which is his body, The fullness of him who fills all in all. Here, the church is identified as the body of Christ. In chapter 20, in verse 22, he's the head. We're the body, okay? But then he says this. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at that phrase. Just look at that phrase. The fullness of him who fills who fills all in all. There's a paradox there. There's an enigma. In one sense, one could look at that and say, that doesn't make any sense. How can somebody, Christ, who fills all in all, need something to fill him? See, that's the problem that this verse gives us in one sense. The church is the fullness of him who needs no fullness. The church is the fullness of him who is Lord and head of everything. The church is the fullness of him who owns the galaxies and the solar system and the universe. The church is the fullness of him who who owns it, who animates it, who holds it together, who directs it, who guides it. It's all his. What could he possibly need beyond that? How could he not be, he fills it, he gives it meaning, he gives it purpose, he is the eternal God, he is God the Son, he is God. How could he possibly need something to fulfill him, to give fullness to him? See, Paul's being very careful here. He's going to talk about something that is the fullness of Christ, that fills up Christ, that, 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 that completes Christ, if I can use that terminology But Christ is somebody who never needs anything to complete him. How does that work? Well, part of it we can understand as we look at the imagery of how Paul is talking. A head certainly needs a body. A bride, bridegroom, needs a bride. A foundation, just laying there is nothing. It's even under the soil. Needs a superstructure. Jesus is the foundation. We're the temple. A cornerstone, just sitting on the field would be just a cornerstone. It needs a structure built around it. Jesus Christ is fulfilled, filled, completed by the church, but he needs no completion because he's, he's almighty God. How does this work? We get a little bit of a hint of it in chapter 5, don't we? Remember chapter 5? Remember what he said? Remember that? Paul calls it a mystery. Verse 30. For we are members of his body. There's the body head thing. Of his flesh and of his bones. But now here's the bride bridegroom thing. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. And be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That obviously Genesis chapter 2. It's obviously talking about Adam and Eve. It's obviously talking about God. How God has ordained marriage. And it says verse 32, this is a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Let me try to put this together for us. Let's take this marriage imagery. Let's take this marriage imagery. Think of a husband. Or you could think of a wife. But I'll, just for the sake of it, I'll think of, think of a husband. He's single. He's not married yet. He's not the husband yet. He's a single guy. He's, he's, he's not married. And he's single. He's a complete human being. And he might be active, he might be healthy, he might be having fun, he might be enjoying singleness. And singleness is a calling. People who have been called to singleness, say, for instance, the rest of their life, Jesus certainly was, John the Baptist was, Paul was, Barnabas was. Singleness is a very legitimate calling. He's complete if you're single. But then this single guy meets a gal, falls in love with her, wants to spend the rest of his life with her, asks her to marry him, she accepts it, and they become married. And now a mystery takes place. The two become one. In a sense now, even though he was complete without her, with her he feels even more complete. Can you put it like that? He feels fulfilled? There's something has happened when the two became one that now he's bonded to her, she's bonded to him, and she completes him. She fulfills him. She His happiness is tied up now in her, and her happiness is tied up with him. There's joy. Their joy is more together. They do things together. When when he sees a beautiful sunset, he says, come here, look at the sunset. The the enjoyment of the sunset is even further enriched when she comes out and enjoys the sunset with him. They're sitting there eating a meal, and he ordered one thing, she ordered another thing, and he says, oh. Oh, you got to taste this. Here, taste this, taste this. And he takes his spitty fork, puts it in his food, puts it out to her mouth. She takes his spitty fork because it's her spit too. They're all one. And then she takes it into her mouth. It's just, oh, that is so good. And now for him, the enjoyment of his food is complete. If he was a single guy and he was sitting there, he say, oh, this is so good. This is so good. But now it is so good, but you have to taste it. You have to taste it. And she might, well, in our marriage it would be he say, I don't like mushrooms. No, 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 you won't taste the mushrooms. You'll just taste it. Taste it. Oh, yeah, you're right. That was good. And suddenly her enjoyment and his enjoyment are fulfilled because they're together. There's something complementary, something about this closeness, something about this identity, something about this unity. And, and, now, and now that they're married and they're one, they don't act independently of each other. They always act together, and it becomes second nature. They just do it. This year, Jan and I will have been married 44 years. So for 44 years in my life, 44 years, I have lived with Jan, and everything, every decision, everything in my life has not been for Todd. It's been for Todd and Jan. Todd and Jan, where are we going to live? What house are we going to buy? How are we going to decorate that house? How are we going to paint that house? How are we going to, what purchases should we make? What car should we buy? Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan. Where are we going to go on vacation? Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan. How about our health? How about our trials that we face? Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan. And what this is saying is, is that the Lord, the Lord has become bound to his church like that. And then, in a marriage, if God were to take one home to be with him, the second one, the one who stays here on earth, feels like half of him is being buried in that tomb. Feels like half of him is gone. Even though when he was a single man, he was complete in and of himself and wouldn't have had that vulnerability now that he's married. And they become one. And the Lord takes her home. Something has been, like half of them has been torn away. And that's the mystery of oneness. And here's the great mystery, Paul says. I am not talking about Christ, husband and wife. I am talking about Christ and the church. Dear friends, now, now we're, we're way outside any human ability, ability to do this. So please, Holy Spirit, come. Listen, dear ones, listen to this. We are tied to the Lord Jesus Christ like that. We, the church, are in union with him. The Lord Jesus Christ sees us as his bride. His happiness is tied up with us. Now, I'm going to speak very carefully here, but I believe I'm speaking biblically. And there is nothing ungodly about this kind of speaking because I think this is what Paul is saying here. Jesus has tied up his happiness with us. Jesus, Lord of heaven, angels worshiping him, paradise, right next to his father, equal in glory and power, will not be completely happy until we are there with him. If I die and I go to heaven and I see Jesus and I'm fellowshipping with him and I'm in paradise and I'm reunited with our brothers and sisters there, do you think anything will happen to my happiness when Jan appears? <laughs> yes, I'll be happy when Jan appears. Or Paul, Caleb, Abe, <laughs> Anna, Daniel, Daniel, yes, yes. Jesus will be fully and completely happy when all of his bride is gathered together with him. The new heavens and the new earth will finally be consummated in perfect happiness when his bride is there with him. In some mysterious way, Jesus has wed us to him has united us with Him. We are one with Him. We are attached to Him. It happened before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And if you start to realize this, Christ loved us and made his church, his bride, and, 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 and took us into his heart and united his happiness and his very being with us. All kinds of things start making sense. Of course I'll leave heaven to go save them. Of course you can nail me to the cross. Of course I'll take on a hand so that you can push a nail through. I'll take on feet so that you can push. Of course I'll get a body so that I can be sacrificed and take their sins upon them. Of course I'll do that. Of course I will. Of course I will rise again. Of course I will pour my spirit out upon them. Of course I will send people out to me. Of course I'm involved in this evangelistic process. Get those missionaries out there. Get the people out there. Witness. Tell people. Bring them all in. Gather them all in. Gather them all in. I'm going to run the universe. I'm going to organize the entire universe so that my church will prosper, so my church will grow, so that these will come in because I, my happinesses will only be complete when they are saved and they are redeemed and they are sanctified and they are where, they are with me and we are one. Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan, Todd and Jan, Christ in this church, Christ in this church, Christ in us, Christ in us, Christ in us. Are you going to go to heaven? Absolutely. Are you safe and secure in Jesus' love? Yes. Is he determined to get you to heaven more than you are? To get you in heaven. Because he loves you. Because you're united to him. Because Jesus can't envision without us. He can't envision that. He won't envision that. And in some mysterious, powerful. Paul says this is a mystery of God. We're his flesh and his bones. In some mystery, Christ has willed. That his happiness, his joy, and his glory will be with us together with him. Oh Father, I pray. Jesus says that they would see my glory, that they would experience my glory that I had with you. Jesus is just about to die, and instead of thinking about himself, he's saying, "They got you. Got to bring them with me. You got to. We got to all be in glory together." Remember my bride. Remember my bride, Father. I want them to experience the glory with me. Jesus is like that. So, what should we do? How can we apply this to ourselves? Well, you know what's interesting? You know what's interesting about the book of Ephesians? We have been, this is our 14th, I think it's our 14th sermon in the book of Ephesians. We have been studying the book of Ephesians, and you know what? The Bible hasn't told us one thing to do yet. Not one thing. There has not been one command yet. Not one. In fact, there won't be, there's a mild one in chapter 2 and verse 11 just a mild one where Paul says, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, i mean, sorry, there's a, uh, there's a mild one in chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, 3 and verse 13 where Paul says, hey, you know, I, I ask you not to lose heart. A, a little one in verse, chapter 2 verse 11, here it is, where he says, um, you know, therefore remember that you were once Gentiles and now you've been saved, just kind of remember how blessed you are. There actually isn't one command in the book of Ephesians until chapter 4 and verse 1, and look at what it says. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, here's the command. Live out what I taught you in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So what's the takeaway from this? Here's the takeaway, dear ones. Realize how blessed you are. Realize how blessed you are. Realize how special you are. Realize how loved you are. Realize how safe you are in Jesus' love. Realize that you are the church and you are the reason the entire universe spins. You're the reason the sun's going to come up tomorrow. You're the reason the planets are orbiting. You're the reason for all that's going on in all of the nations for the good of the church. You are blessed people. And blessed people, blessed people, they act differently. People just graduated. I'm graduate. I've graduated. They're happy. People are engaged. Look, look, I'm engaged. I'm engaged. They're happy. They're happy. People just got hired. Hey, I just got this new job. Hey, I just got promoted. Hey, I'm a parent. Hey, I'm a grandparent. Hey, I just inherited something. Hey, guess what? I just got recognition. I'm in the Hall of Fame. Hey, I'm, I'm cancer free. Hey, all the blockages are gone. Praise God. Praise God. I'm All this good stuff. Oh, this is, blessed people are happy. Blessed people are cheerful. Blessed people are blessed. And the book of Ephesians says to say to you, look how blessed you are. You are the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Oh, dear ones, let's be blessed, people. Are there any here who are outside this blessing? Are there any here who are going to go to hell? Are you going to go to hell? Are you not part of the bride? Is Jesus going to send you to hell? Some of you may go to hell. We're in this room right now. You didn't want nothing to do with Jesus. You didn't want nothing to do with religion. You didn't want nothing to do with following Jesus. Do you, do you understand what you're doing? What did we just say? What did we just open up? What did the Bible just say about the blessedness of these people who are in the church? And you don't want to be in the church. You don't want to be part of God's people. Do you, do you really? What do you? What can the world offer you that's even close to what we've just been talking about? Worldly great. Oh, no, my friends think I'm cool. My friends think, hey, you, you don't know who I am. I'm cool. I'm hip. Do you know how temporal that is? Kids, young people, 30 years old and under, 40 years old and under. Who's Grover Cleveland? Who's Harold? Who's Warren G. Harding? Who's Bobby Hall? Who's Bart Starr? Who are the Doors? Who's Elizabeth Taylor? Most of you are sitting here saying, I don't have a clue. I've never heard those names before. These were some of the most popular people on the face of the earth at one point. And now you don't even know who they are. And the goofy ones that, you know, are popular today, Gizziwajizzi, or I don't even know what their names are. That's not a real name. <laughs> Ten years from now, nobody even knows who Gizziwajizzi was. Your pleasures are temporary. Partying, food, drink, sex, raucous loud laughter around the campfire, sucking down the brewski's. Money. It's all temporal, dear ones. It's gonna go away. It's gonna be nothing. Somebody else is gonna be spending your money. Somebody else can be living in your home. Somebody else can be driving your car. But the God man loving you passionately. And running the universe for your good. And preparing a place for you. And loving you and never seeing you separated from him forever and ever and ever in his love. Priceless. Priceless. May you enter in. May you have your eyes opened. May you see this and run to Christ right now and find in him this rich salvation. Is Jesus calling you? Has the world been been coming up shallow and empty and, and disappointing? Well, that's Jesus working in your life, running the universe to get you to come, to open your eyes. Because he wants you in this beautiful family, his body. Come to Jesus today. All you have to do is just turn in prayer. Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, I'm real this time. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Take me, make me yours. Oh, Lord Jesus, I want you. Pray. And if you need help, turn to somebody in this church. We'll help you. But come come into the kingdom of God with us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, there are no human words that can describe the glory of what your word has just taught us this day. Who are we that we would be one with you, united to you, one flesh as it were, married to you, the body and you the head. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that before the foundation of the world, you loved us. You loved your church. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us now. Thank you that you came to purchase us. Thank you that you laid down your life for your bride. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you that you have included us. Oh, thank you for this great privilege. Thank you. If there's any here who are crying out to you because they want in. They want in. Oh, Lord Jesus, we know your loving heart. In fact, we know they want in because you've been calling them. Oh, Lord Jesus, hear their prayer. Save them. Save them, we pray. And thank you. Thank you for your blessed church. Thank you that we are the church. We praise you in your precious name. Amen.